Hey, good morning, church. Great to see those of you in person. Grateful for all of you who are joining us online. Hard to believe it was two years ago this weekend that we, along with many other churches and businesses, suspended all in-person activities for what we didn't know how long it would be. It was two years ago last weekend that I was traveling out to Washington, D.C. to speak at an event in Fairfax. Uh, they hold this uh, conference every other year, and I was traveling out there. I boarded a plane here in Memphis to go to Charlotte and then on to D.C., and coming onto that plane in Memphis were a bunch of 18- and 19-year-old college students, a bunch of young men who had a mentor that was with them, but they were scattered all over our plane. And next to me, there were two seats on that road. Next to me was an 18-year-old college freshman, and I could tell the moment he sat down, he had never been on a flight before because he couldn't figure out how to put his seatbelt on. He thought it was a magnet. He couldn't get it to click. So I helped him out. I undid my seatbelt and then kind of walked him through how to get your seatbelt on. And then as we uh, began to move and then we took off, like he, he turned into a little kid where he elbowed me. He's like, dude, you can see people in the backyard. Like he was so excited. He's like, you can see cars out on the road. And, he was, and then we got to the clouds. And when we got to the clouds, he grabbed his stomach and he put his head back and started spinning. He's like, oh no, this isn't good. And if you know anything about me, right, like my greatest phobia in life is throw up. I'm better since I'm a dad, but if you throw up around me, I'm not going to throw up. I'm just going to despise you. I may hit you for, like, despise you for the rest of my life. I may accidentally hit you. And I, I just sat there and thinking, like, this can't happen. Like, I began praying, like, God, please don't let this dude do this. And I handed him the little bag you have on airplanes. I handed him that. And then I was like, man, this isn't happening right now. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating this story at all. I started hitting him on the side of the leg. And I was like, man, I need you to follow what I do. Put your head on the back of your seat. So he put his head in. And I said, I need you to take deep breaths with me. And we took five deep breaths together. He followed me through five deep breaths. And then he settled down and he was all right. About halfway through the flight, we hit some turbulence. And he looked at me and was like, man, can we do that breathing thing again? And I was like, sure, all right. So we, we took a couple of deep breaths. And what was so ironic is I was getting off that plane to speak at an event in Fairfax called Breathe. From Ezekiel chapter 37, the story about dry bones, where God puts these bones back together, but it's not until there is breath in the bodies. It's not until breath is there that they are fully alive. And little did I know how many times for two years I was going to need God to hit my knee and to say, hey, I need you to breathe the way I breathe. You panic if you see me panic. And God telling me for over two years, moments when I've been freaking out like many of you, like, hey, take a moment and breathe. This morning we have people joining us online all the way in Ukraine. And you think about all the things going on in our world and that have gone on in our world and to be able to come together as a church in the midst of it all and to say, we serve a God who is faithful and a God who is good even when we don't see it. This past week we had two baptisms in the life of this church in Ukraine. There were baptisms in our mission effort that we support in Zambia. There were multiple baptisms this past week. God is on the move in ways, in some ways that we can acknowledge and we see and in many ways that we may never know about. We serve a faithful God. In 2008, I came here in June. I began preaching my first sermon series. That summer was kind of topical. I, I, just, I came in as a young 27-year-old, and I talked about the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the church, the mission of God. And then in September of 2008, I started a nine-week series on the gospel, a, a nine-month series on the gospel of Luke. Since then, I've preached every gospel, most of the four gospels, at least three of them multiple times. And the first day I stood up preaching the Gospel of Luke, we called the sermon series Life Reframed. 
And I asked people if they would be willing to donate frames from their home, like frames that either they're using or frames are in the attic. And, and we wanted to put together pieces of art. So week two, we put up what is now right here in our worship center on both sides of me. We put up these crosses with these frames. Now, when we first did this, there were some church people, and you got to love church people, but church people, they, they didn't really like the idea. And there were a few of them who, were, who they questioned it. They said it was distracting. Why do we need to hang crosses? Because if we hang crosses, the next thing we're going to bring candles, and then next thing after that, we become Catholic. Like, that's just like, we don't need all these things in our worship center. And they, they weren't too keen on the idea, but Kip and I just talked with them and said, hey, can, just hang on with us. This whole idea of being reframed is that frames hold the stories of our lives, and all of our stories come together at the cross. So this is why we have these two crosses with frames on them. That all of our stories come together at the cross. After nine months, finished the sermon series, Kip and I attempted to take the crosses down. The same people who, when we put them up, didn't like it, were the people who told us that they would take our lives if we did not put them back up. Like, they, they loved them. And since then, over the last 14 years or so, there have been times that we, we thought it was time maybe to remove the crosses. And people are like, you can't take down the crosses. So... What you see every Sunday when you come into this worship center is a reminder that all of our stories, all of our lives come together with the cross. Some of you wear crosses. Some of you have crosses tattooed on your bodies. You can wear crosses. It's a symbol that you'll see on rings, hanging from necklaces, sometimes earrings, hanging in your homes, hanging in churches. And in the first century culture, it was one of the most offensive symbols you could find. And now we sing about it. We reflect on it. We thank God for it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, here's what Paul says. We preach Christ crucified, and literally in the Greek it says this. We preach Christ crucified, and literally says this. it says this. To the Jews, a scandal. Scandalone. To the Gentiles, foolishness. So what Paul says about the cross is to the Jews, it's offensive. Like they, they respond to the idea of a crucifixion. It offends them. It's humiliating. To the Jews, I mean to the Gentiles, it's just straight up crazy. Like does it make sense at all? And what is it that makes the cross a scandal? And what makes the cross a scandal isn't just that Jesus died. It's how he died. It's the mode of his death. A cross, a crucifixion, it was for slaves and it was for rebels. Heroes didn't die on crosses. It wasn't a noble death. When you think noble death, you think about firefighters going into the towers on September 11th. You think about parents who protect their child and would take a bullet for their child. Maybe you think about soldiers who have gone into battlefields to protect the people they love or the country they love. But a noble death, like crucifixion, wasn't a noble death. And, the, and though Jesus died on a Roman cross, the Roman Empire didn't invent the cross. They perfected it. A few decades before Jesus uh, came to, before Jesus was born, a few decades before that, uh, maybe you've seen movies or you've heard stories about Spartacus who, who led a slave revolt. And Spartacus led this revolt. He died in a battle, and Rome uh, took 6,000 of Spartacus's soldiers prisoner. And what Rome chose to do, from the 130 miles from where the battle was fought all the way to Rome, is they crucified on a cross all 6,000 soldiers. Every 40 yards for 130 miles, there was a cross set up and a soldier that was placed on it. So think about if you were walking with your family down this one road that could get you places, and for over a week, the things you would see and the things you would hear. Now here's the thing about Jews, though. Jews didn't advocate for a cross, and rarely did the Jews use crosses. 
Now, there was an exception. In 88 BC, there were some Pharisees who rebelled, and 800 Pharisees were crucified, hung on crosses to die. But for the most part, this wasn't a way that Jews, this wasn't a mode of death that Jews would advocate for or that they would use. But when it came to Jesus dying, what they shouted out in the midst of that large crowd is they said, Crucify him. Not just kill him, not just take his life, but crucify him. When people were crucified, they weren't taken like way outside of town on the other side of a hill where they were given a quick death. The crucifixion would often happen like on a major road. If it was outside the city, it was where people in the city could see it. It was supposed to be humiliating. It was supposed to be a spectacle. And it was a way that Rome, it was a mode of death, a a way of death for Rome that would say, this person deserves to be humiliated and we're going to do it. And if you ever try to do something against Rome, the same thing's going to happen to you too. So why did Jesus die a death on a cross? Because we, we live in the 21st century, right? Like, there, there's not a sacrificial system anymore where we're killing goats or there's need for blood in order to have sins, forgiveness, uh, sins forgiven. So the whole idea of like a sacrificial system is, is ancient and foreign to so many people and it can become a scandal or a stumbling block for some people to hear the good news of Jesus. So why a cross? Because you think about it, we serve a God who could have come up with a thousand different ways to forgive the sin of the world and to set the world right. We serve a God who in the very beginning spoke words and things were created. Like in Genesis 1, God said something and something was created. Like a God who could have just spoken forgiveness into being. A God who, if it was needed for Jesus to die, could have had a quick death that could have brought salvation to the entire world. But instead of all the ways God chose to bring salvation to the world, it was through crucifixion, through a cross. And when it comes to the cross, like we can have all these questions. Like, was, is the cross, is this an example of the love of God? Or is this about the wrath of God? And can it be both? Like, is it the love of God or the holiness of God? Is it the love of God that, was, that compelled God to use this as a way to offer grace to the entire world? Or is it, was God driven by holiness that God is separated from sin and can't stand sin and needed to do something to set the world right? And there are some really smart people, smart theologians, who have talked about the bipolarizing nature of God. Like in the cross, it almost seems like God is bipolar. And of all ways for God to bring salvation to the world, God chooses a cross. For ways for God, the way for God to bring forgiveness into the world and to set us free from all evil and death, it's a cross. Fleming Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, fantastic book, she says this, this was Jesus' warfare. That is one of the most important reasons, perhaps the most important, that Jesus was crucified. For no other mode of execution would have been commensurate with the extremity of humanity's condition under sin. Jesus' situation under the harsh judgment of Rome was analogous to our situation under sin. He was condemned. He was rendered helpless and powerless. He was stripped of his humanity. He was reduced to the status of a beast, declared unfit to live and deserving of a death proper to slaves. This is what happened on the cross. The Son of God gave himself up to be enslaved by sin, condemned by the law, and subject to death. That Jesus became our representative. And that somehow in that moment, on that day, the world was made different. So here are three things I want to do from now leading up to Easter Sunday. 
three things in this series called uh, Scandal of the Cross. And one is I want to help grow your appreciation for the crucifixion. To grow your appreciation for all the ways God has worked in and through the crucifixion to bring good news to the world. Two, the second thing I want to do is to broaden the significance of the meaning of the crucifixion. And this is huge. I got to think it's so important to broaden the significance because a lot of people, as I'm going to show here in just a few minutes, have kind of locked in on one way to think about the crucifixion. I want to broaden the significance of that because there are, there are great ramifications of how you think about the cross. Not just how you think about what Jesus did, but then Jesus came and said things like, if you want to be a follower of me, then you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. I think most of us are fine with Jesus taking up his cross and even Jesus taking up our cross for us, but then Jesus tells us to take up our own cross. So what does that even mean? And thirdly, what I want to do over the next few weeks is for us to see that faith isn't so much about us getting to God, but believing in all the ways God has chosen to get to us. It's not just you working so hard to try to get to God it's you having faith and believing in all the ways God has worked to get to us. So here's what I want to do today. I want to go through seven motifs of the cross, images of the cross. A motif is a, reoccurring, is a recurring subject. It's a, a dominant idea. So I'm going to walk you through seven motifs, and they're, they're not in any order. None of these motifs are more important than the other. And then in the weeks to come, I want to spend a little more time on each one of these. So if you're a note taker, the next few minutes is for you. I'm going to walk through these motifs. I'm going to show you scriptures that go with each one. Uh, and, and sometimes I'm hesitant to like get one verse and put it to a theme because a verse has a context and there's a reason it's there. And I'm not going to do a lot with, uh, with contextual work today. So I'm going to give you a motif, talk about it for a moment, and give you scripture that goes behind it. And through this, I hope that by the end of this sermon, end of this message, that your appreciation for everything Jesus has done in and through the crucifixion will be broadened, that you will grow in your appreciation, and that we will want to respond accordingly this week. The first motif I want to talk about is Christus Victor. And Christus Victor is the idea that through the cross, Jesus won a victory over evil by taking on evil. This is like cosmic. This is in and through the cross. Jesus went straight after evil and death. Jesus went straight after Satan and dealt evil a, a catastrophic blow. Now, in my life and in my preaching, though I may not use the phrase Christus Victor a lot, this has probably been the dominant way I have talked about the cross for over a dozen years. And it's not that I don't care about the other motifs, but this has been the dominant one. Some of that is my personality, that I often go to hope and light and life more than I kind of deal with pain. Hopefully, as I've matured, I've been able to do that better. And I also realized around a dozen years ago, Casey and I made a decision to relocate, to move into an under-resourced community. I became a board member at Agape Child and Family Services, and I began doing a lot more work with those who were on the margins of life. And as I, as I began to walk with people who were, who were dealing with different forms of pain, I, I wanted victory for them. I wanted hope for them. So Christus Victor, this idea that Jesus came to deal all forms of evil, a catastrophic blow, meant a lot to me and what it had to offer to the world. It was also a dozen years ago that my sister passed away. And as I was dealing with grief in my own life, I was reaching for anything that could give me hope. So Christus Victor gave hope to my soul and hope to my ministry. 
As you think about Christus' victory even in Scripture, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 15 says this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Philippians 2, 8 through 11, which is arguably the oldest hymn that the church has sung, it says this, that being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, which is connecting the obedience to death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. On the cross, Jesus gained and won a victory. This is hopeful. This is good news. This, is, this means that we are reconnected with those one day that the ultimate victory has been won. The second motif I want to talk about just for a moment is scapegoat. And the scapegoat is this idea that our sins were placed, our sins were transferred onto Jesus, and he carried them away. The idea of scapegoat in the Old Testament is at one point, uh, uh, the, the people of God would be gathered around, and the high priest, after choosing a certain goat, would place the hands on the goat. And as that high priest would do that, what it stood for is that all the sins of the people were being transferred onto that goat. And this was not a goat that was slaughtered. This was a goat that was meant to escape, to run away, to carry away the sins of the people. And the people would watch this, like applaud it. They wanted that goat to go as far away as possible. Now, because the last thing you want is for your sins to be transferred onto a goat, and that goat get like 100 yards away and then turn around and start coming back to you. Like, you don't want your sins coming back into the community. You want that goat to get away, to go far away. And now Jesus has become the scapegoat, where the sins of the world, our sins, were transferred and placed on Jesus, and he went away with them. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 22 through 24 says this. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then quoting Isaiah 53, Peter says this. By his wounds you have been healed. And in Isaiah 53 verse 6, what it says is the Lord laid on him the iniquities, the sins of us all. Isaiah 53 is referencing the scapegoat. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sins have been transferred, placed on Jesus, and Jesus has carried them away. The third motif is ransom. Because of sin, all people are held in bondage against our will and need to be set free. And the idea of ransom is that Jesus has paid the price for our sins, or for our freedom. So the whole idea of ransom is that evil holds us bondage. This is how it works. Evil holds us bondage. There was a price for us to experience freedom, and Jesus paid the price by giving his own body. That is what paid the price for us. Jesus says this about himself in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, it says this, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. 
And then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It says, Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. There was a price to be paid, and Jesus has paid the price. Now, if ransom is the only way you think about the crucifixion, it's going to raise questions. Because if ransom is the only way you think about the crucifixion, is Satan really the one who is calling all the shots? Is Satan really the one who sets the price? Is God the deceiving person who says he's going to give his son, but then three days later raise his son to life? Therefore, it wasn't a good deal. But it is a way to think about being held in bondage. A price was needed. Jesus has paid the price. And because of that, we experience freedom. Fourthly is the Passover lamb. That Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be saved. There is a phrase that shows up throughout the book of Hebrews and in some other places in the New Testament, which is the phrase, once for all. So that song some of us sung years ago, can he still feel the nails every time I fail? The answer is no, he can't. Because one time he went to the cross, once for all, held the sin upon himself, dealt sin a catastrophic blow, and came back to life. He became the Passover lamb for us. Blood was necessary, which is hard for us to think about today. How necessary blood was for sacrifices. A lot of us don't do well with blood. Casey, my wife, does not do well with blood at all. She passes out. I told my boys the other day, if there ever, is ever a moment when you were throwing up and you were bleeding, your parents will be no help to you at all. Because Casey's passing out, and I'm running away. Now, I'm going to run away and try to get help to come back and find you. But for a little while, like, you're on your own, all right? We don't do well with blood. But here's, look, in John chapter 1, verse 29, here's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. One of the first moments he sees Jesus, here's what John the Baptist said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul writes this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In Hebrews 9, 22, it says this, In fact, the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, in two weeks, I want to come back and talk more about the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, and what that means. The fifth motif I want to talk about just for a moment is this, penal substitutionary atonement, which is often referenced as PSA. And I can make the argument, and I, I think I'm right, most of us, you may have grown up hearing about other motifs, but most of us have probably heard more people talk about substitutionary atonement than anyone else. Some of the most, uh, most prominent, uh, most popular preachers and authors, like this is their primary way that they think about the crucifixion of Jesus. It is through substitutionary atonement that sin needs to be punished, death is demanded, and Jesus steps in to take your place. And the Bible talks a lot about atonement. And just in the New Testament alone, Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. In 1 John 2, 2, it says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In John, 1 John 4, 10, it says, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus has become the substitute. Now, if this is the only motif 
we have to be careful how we talk about this because if substitutionary atonement is the only way you think about the crucifixion, you have to be really careful how you talk about God, especially to unbelievers. Because it's easy for substitutionary atonement to make God out to be some God full of wrath and full of anger where God does hate sin. We know that, but that God is out to destroy people and you better be glad that Jesus took in and took the arrow so that you didn't have to take it. And I love how Paul and John, when they talk about atonement in some of the verses I read, they talk about the love of God. Because the verse we talk about, and probably we recite more than any other verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If we're not careful, the way we interpret that, or at least live it out, is that for God so hated the world that he took out his son for the world. But it's that God loved the world that he was willing for there to be a substitute in our place. The next one is moral exemplar. And this one has really taken off. It's been around for years. I'm going to root it in Scripture here in a moment. But especially with people whose hearts are bent towards justice and compassion and the, and the marginalized, is that Jesus has set the ultimate example of the kind of life that makes the entire world a better place. And the moral example is that as Jesus taught his lessons and lived his life and encountered people, that the sacrifice on the cross was an extension of the sacrificial nature of Jesus. And that Jesus has set a moral example. He has set an example for us to live a life of sacrifice in the same kind of way. In John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. In Romans 5, 7 and 8, it says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus has set a moral example. And last but not least is solidarity. And this is the idea, this is the motif, that Jesus came to live among us in every way. That Jesus' grace can get lower than our lowest low. That Jesus walked the earth that we walk on, felt the pain, experienced the rejection, bled the blood, died a death, and even died our death. There is solidarity. In John 1.14, it's the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Hebrews 2.17, it's for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now here are seven motifs, and these aren't the only seven. I'm sure there are more out there, but I've just tried to take seven motifs to help expand and broaden how we think about the crucifixion. And the whole purpose of me doing this for you today isn't for you to think through which one do you like the most. It's what do all of these offer you and what do they tell you about how desperate God was to get to us and to do something for us and to take out evil. God is the one who's provided victory for us. God has placed the sins upon Jesus. There has been a sacrifice. Jesus has set an example. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jew. It's a scandal. It's offensive. Now this church in Corinth, they were a messed up church. There was a lot of division in that place. There were cliques. 
It was a church. I mean, it was a growing church. You read First Corinthians, it sounds like, like there, are, there are people who don't know Jesus who were coming into all of their worship services. So it's a growing church. It's a church where the rich people and the poor people, they, the rich were doing things without waiting for the poor people to get there. It's a church of Jews and Gentiles and their cliques. And then some people are like bragging about who baptized them and wearing it as a badge. In 1 Corinthians 5, they're bragging about accepting a man who's sleeping with his stepmother. And they're like bragging about it. Like, look how full of grace we are as a church. Like, we'll just bring anybody in here without calling them, them to a life of righteousness. And throughout 1 Corinthians, what Paul reminds the church of is you have got to find yourself at the center of the cross. And if you look over the cross, thinking that you can grow a church without talking about crucifixion and about sin, like, you have no message left. Like, you may think this is like, putting people off like they don't want to hear it but if you don't talk about it that there's no message of the good news of Jesus so just a few places in first Corinthians where Paul reminds them in first Corinthians 1 17 and 18 Paul says this for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with wisdom and eloquence lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of God in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, It's the brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And by this gospel you were saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So church, wear your crosses. Sing about them. Hold up the cross. Reflect on the cross. And as you do, think about the fact that it is more than you could ever imagine. It is God's way of punishing sin forever. It is God's way of taking on death and evil. It is God's way of absorbing the sin of the world. It is God's victory over evil. It is God's way to offer reconciliation to the entire world. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 10 and 11, the way Paul puts it is, we always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed through our bodies. So I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup in your hand. Don't take it yet, just hold it in your hand. If you're online with us virtually, if you'll just hold the bread and the cup. If you don't have it, hang with us in this moment. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it is a chapter in which half of it is dealing with communion gone wrong, where communion was meant to be around a table, enjoying fellowship, focusing on Jesus, examining yourself with other people, and it became something where the rich weren't waiting on the poor. They were taking the community out of communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, what Paul says while he's talking to them about the Lord's Supper is, For whoever, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This moment proclaims the Lord's death. It's proclaiming something proclaiming something to our lives it's proclaiming something through us it's not just about mourning the lord's death in this moment it's proclaiming the lord's death 
So here in just a moment, I'm going to have a prayer. But I want you to know, next Sunday, and we've been waiting for this for such a long time. It's been over two years and we've been able to like pass trays and we're not bringing trays back next week. But we're going to expand the communion moment next Sunday. It's going to be a little longer. All the communion is going to be in this room, not on a table for you to get it while you come in. I, after my message, I'm going to set up a moment where I'm going to invite you to even move to tables, either by yourself or a time of your own personal reflection. So there may be people who just get communion and sit down, or for families or friends or groups to go take communion together. It's going to be just a moment for you as you reflect with God and reflect with other people on all Jesus has done for us. There's going to be soft music that will play over us. It's going to be a five-minute moment or so where we're just going to expand what communion can do for us. And next Sunday, we're also going to have Shepherd A Physician, who is up front to my right to receive people for prayer that we haven't had in two years. And a shepherd will be here. Uh, so there will be prayer in this room, some movement in this room, because there's not just one way or one emotion to bring into communion. We come together as people. In this moment, as diverse as we are, to take the bread and the cup, and through this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. And God, in this moment, we give you thanks for victory, for sacrifice. Jesus, for all you did to set us free, we thank you. And may we proclaim this moment, proclaim your death in this moment, in ourselves, and as we leave this place today, may we respond in a way that brings you glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please take the bread and cup.